This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. When we read the Bible separated from its cultural and spiritual world, we most certainly misread it. Readers of the Gospels and Acts often approach these works standing outside of the cultural and spiritual world of ancient Judaism, which is the world of the New Testament. We bring many of our assumptions, mistaken assumptions, to our reading when we do that. This perhaps can be seen most clearly in how we read and understand the Pharisees within the Gospels and Acts. They're usually treated as the bad guys within the Gospels. The term Pharisee has gained a derogatory meaning within modern English due to this assumption. They were legalists, hypocrites, the enemies of Jesus. The term Pharisee has entered Christian lexicons as a derisive term used, frankly, within inner Christian debates. It's what we say when we really want to call someone out. Of course, this Christian characterization reinforces our negative understanding of the Pharisees within the Gospels and Acts. What's more, it has no connection to the historical Pharisees. And as rabbinic Judaism descended from the Pharisaic stream of Jewish piety, it serves to reinforce Christian anti-Jewish tropes and sentiment, even though the target of such comments are not usually modern or ancient Jews. Today we want to ask the question, who were the Pharisees in history and the New Testament? Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? 
Do you feel like you're missing things that the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. Before we look at the Pharisees in the New Testament, we need to understand who they were in history. Our major ancient source on the Pharisees is the first century Jewish historian Josephus. The name Pharisee seems to derive from the Hebrew word parush, which primarily means to be separated. Now, some have suggested that it means a secondary sense of interpreter. So, One way of reading it is those who separate themselves, others, those who are interpreters. I'm going to opt for the first way of understanding the origin of the word. Why? In Hebrew, this word can have a negative connotation, which is why in Hebrew sources, we never have anyone referring to themselves as a Pharisee. Therefore, the name seemed to originate with the opponents of the Pharisees who identified them as those who separate themselves out. Again, let me make clear, the word parush can mean to be separated or to interpret. Some modern scholars want to understand Pharisees as the interpreters, but then they have to explain why we do not find anyone calling themselves such in Hebrew. It's only a term that is used to speak about those who are separated. Now, in Greek, the name did not retain its pejorative meaning. For example, we find Paul in Philippians and also in Acts 23, Josephus, the Jewish historian, in his life, both refer to themselves as Pharisees but that's both in Greek. The New Testament, which is written in Greek, identified Nicodemus, who was known in rabbinic sources as a Pharisee. Rabban Gamliel, Paul's teacher in Acts chapter 5, is identified as a Pharisee. Josephus identified the son of Rabban Gamliel as a Pharisee, and his name was Shimon ben Gamliel. We also hear two other sages who lived under Herod the Great, Samias and Polion, which probably refer to Shammai and Hillel, identified by Josephus as Pharisees. So again, in Greek, the term does not retain its pejorative sense. Descriptions of the Pharisees in Greek sources, like Josephus in the New Testament, parallel the descriptions that we find in rabbinic literature of the sages of Israel. Again, going to the fact that in Hebrew, the term seemingly has a pejorative sense. So in rabbinic literature, which is primarily written in Hebrew, they simply are referred to as the sages of Israel. And those parallel the Pharisees that we find in Greek sources. The Pharisees originated most likely as a group during the 2nd century BC during the reign of the Hasmoneans, this Hasmonean state that spans from 142 to 63 BC. 
Josephus first mentions them in connection with the career of Jonathan the Hasmonean. His first mention, however, of them in connection with historical events comes during the reign of John Hyrcanus in the latter part of the second century BC. It seems, and I have to say it seems, because we do not have good sources on the origin of this group, but it seems that they developed as a religious and political group that was involved in the political religious workings of the Hasmonean state. Josephus describes that the Pharisees rejected John Hyrcanus's identification of himself as both high priest and king, so Hyrcanus aligned himself with the opponents of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The son of John Hyrcanus, Alexander Janaeus, is going to crucify 800 Pharisees on trees lining the road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, an event that's not only spoken about in Josephus, but is also remembered in the sectarian works of the Dead Sea Scrolls. On his deathbed, however, Alexander Janaeus instructed his wife, Salome Alexandra, to listen to the Pharisees because they had the ear of the people. Josephus, in his description of the Pharisees, puts their number during the reign of Herod the Great at around 6,000. Now, the Pharisees are going to oppose Rome's entry into Judean politics, as well as Herod the Great's ascension to power, but many of them saw this as happening because of Israel's sin. This number, 6,000, most likely represents those who undertook to consume their everyday food in ritual purity. And here's where we probably get the origin of the name Pharisee, i.e. those who separate themselves. Let me explain. It seems that these 6,000 who took to consume their everyday food in ritual purity were making an assumption that the ritual purity prescribed in the law of Moses for the priest in the temple when he is to consume food extended to when they sat at table as well. Now, that's not what the law of Moses says, but they extended purity to table fellowship. This meant that those that were not of that level of ritual purity were not permitted. Therefore, the Pharisees were those who had separated themselves from the community. It's kind of like the name Protestant. That did not originate with the Protestants. Rather, it originated with their detractors. Now, the Pharisees did not insist that everyone should be a full member of their community. Rather, it's a broad movement based upon certain key points of agreement in terms of biblical interpretation and practice. This is what enabled them to win the support of the people. And Josephus even relates that the nation followed the Pharisees. They exerted their influence as teachers in synagogues and within villages and communities throughout the country. They taught the people their interpretation of the Torah in the synagogues, including their views of purity and daily practice. And we even hear that the Sadducees 
who control the temple Jerusalem aristocracy at times had to align their practices with that of the Pharisees because of the popularity that the Pharisees enjoined with the masses. They viewed the Torah as a developing and dynamic body of instruction. The Torah for them consisted of the written Torah, what Christians will call the Old Testament and Jews will call the Tanakh, and the oral Torah, which was handed down from teacher to disciple and provided contemporary interpretation to the written Torah. My teacher, Steve Notley, often compares the oral and written Torah like two tracks of a train track that are moving in the same direction. The idea is to give instruction and move people towards the way of God. They sought to offer accurate interpretation of the written Torah and provided practical interpretation that made the faith relevant, vibrant, applicable in a modern life situation for the people. Understand that when we talk about Jewish interpretation of the Bible, we're dealing with a written work and really written works that were written hundreds of years before the time of the first century. And if we've learned anything from the bard from Hibbing, Minnesota, the times, they are a-changing. And so, too, does culture. What the Pharisees were trying to do, what other streams of Jewish piety were trying to do, is simply make relevant and applicable these scriptures. Because Judaism is going to develop as an orthopraxy, not an orthodoxy, it becomes important to understand what does purity observance look like? What does Sabbath practice look like? What is work on the Sabbath? These scripture passages, like what we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy of do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, which originally pertained to Canaanite fertility practices, how do you handle that when there are no longer Canaanites in the land? If you say that this scripture is inspired and is relevant today as it was when it was originally given, then you have to make it contemporary, make it modern, make it understandable. That's what Pharisaic oral law is all about. It's really, frankly, no different than what any pastor does when he or she stands in a pulpit and says, this is how these ancient texts apply today. The Pharisees spoke of repentance, the kingdom of heaven. They taught in story parables. They believed in redemption, the bodily resurrection of the dead and the world to come. Now, any reader of the New Testament should recognize many of those words, phrases, and ideas. They believed in divine sovereignty and in human free will. Specifically, they believed that humanity had the ability to choose to disobey God or to obey him. Two primary schools or houses existed among the Pharisaic movement in the first century, the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. 
the House of Shammai tended towards a more conservative and theocentric interpretation of the Torah, while the House of Hillel tended towards a more humane reading of the Torah. There were other groups within the broad stream of Pharisaic Judaism. Remember, Pharisaic Judaism is not monolithic. Here I'll mention two of these groups that were part of the broader movement, the Fourth Philosophy and the Hasidim. Josephus mentions that the emergence of the Fourth Philosophy coincided with the census of Quirinius in A.D. 6, when Rome annexed the lands of Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great. Judah of Gamla founded the movement and upbraided his fellow countrymen for consenting to pay taxes to Caesar when God alone was the Lord of the Jews. Judah and his followers believed that Jewish acceptance of Roman rule was a sin. When presented with this reality, Judah felt that Jews should take up the sword and spill Roman blood. Josephus mentions that the fourth philosophy agreed in most things with the Pharisees, except they had an unbridled passion for liberty. Elements within the Pharisees, like the peace movement, challenged the militantism of the fourth philosophy and others that were like it. But other groups, like the house of Shammai, which seems to have been the dominant Pharisaic house prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, aligned with the militant movement similar to the fourth philosophy. The broader stream of Pharisaic Judaism also contained a group known as the Hasidim. This was a group of pious, sometimes wonder-working individuals who found themselves at times in tension with the Pharisaic establishment. Rabbinic literature preserves stories and sayings of this group of the Hasidim, who it also calls the Men of Deeds. This group was known for their exceptional piety, the working of miracles, they healed the sick, they brought rain, they rescued people from various troubles, they were not sages, and typically they are not referred to as rabbi within early sources. They felt an obligation to care for anyone that was in need, including those who were ritually impure. And this is what brings them criticism from the Pharisees for not following such strict purity observances. The sages, however, acknowledged these Hasidim for their piety and miracle-working ability, and they turned to them in times of trouble. The Hasidim stood on the fringe of the larger Pharisaic movement, but they possessed a popularity among the people and even among the sages. Their popularity, in part, stemmed for their concern for the needs of an individual over and above ritual purity, as well as their ability to work miracles. The base of power for the Pharisees was Torah study and interpretation. The Hasidim challenged this power because they emphasized a person's relation and responsibility to another, particularly the needy, on which they were very strict. They emphasized prayer, which they did a great deal and spent many hours in prayer. And they embraced poverty as an ideology, all of these they elevated above Torah study. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't study the Torah, but it's an issue of hierarchy and priority. They also emphasize the deeds of the Torah over study of the Torah. And this is probably the origin of their name, the men of deeds. 
the Anshe Maase. This does not mean, again, that they rejected Torah study. It simply was an issue of priority. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low-stress, no-fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. The Hasidim were particularly active in the Galilee. They taught in public through story parables. And the height of their activity spanned from the 1st century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D. Their relationship with God was often seen as unique and described as that of a father to a son. Sound familiar, any of this? In fact, as we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment, the tensions that we find with Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospels aligns with the same kinds of tensions we find in rabbinic sources between the Hasidim and the Pharisees. The Pharisees as a movement represented a broad stream within ancient Jewish piety. Again, they were not monolithic. Their contemporaries, like the Qumran community, criticized them. Some of these criticisms even parallel those found in the New Testament. But far from considering the Pharisees as legalists or legalistic, the Qumran community identified them as the seekers of smooth things. They were too liberal and relaxed in their interpretation of Scripture for the Qumran community. The Pharisees even criticized themselves. And these criticisms parallel Jesus' woes against the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew and Luke. Let me give you an example of this. We actually find three different passages within rabbinic literature. The first is this deathbed instruction from Alexander Janaeus to his wife, Salome Alexandra. It says, King Yanai said to his wife, 
fear not the Pharisees and the non-Pharisees, but the hypocrites who ape the Pharisees because their deeds are the deeds of Zimri, but they expect the reward of Phineas. Notice the charge of hypocrisy and aping the Pharisees. We find in two passages, one in the Babylonian Talmud and the other in the Jerusalem Talmud, again, a Pharisaic self-criticism about their issues. So from the Babylonian Talmud, we read, And the plague of the Pharisees. Our rabbis have taught there are seven types of Pharisees. The Shikmi Pharisee, the Nikvi Pharisee, the Kizai Pharisee, the Pestle Pharisee, the Pharisee who constantly exclaims, What is my duty that I may perform it? The Pharisee from love and the Pharisee from fear. Notice of the seven, there's only two that are good, five are bad. It goes on to say the Shikmi Pharisee, he is one who performs the action of Shechem. This is talking about the sons of Jacob, Levi and Simeon, who slaughtered the men of Shechem while they had been in great pain due to being circumcised because Shechem wanted Dina, their sister. And we did a podcast on that earlier this season. But they're saying that these were the Shikmi Pharisees. The Nikfi Pharisee, he is one who knocks his feet together. In other words, he walks in an exaggerated humility. The Kizai Pharisee, he is one who makes his blood flow against the wall. Why? Because his anxiety is so great, he's trying to avoid not looking upon a woman, so he dashes his face against the wall. The pestle Pharisee, his head is bowed like a pestle in a mortar. The Pharisee who constantly exclaims, what is my duty that I may perform it? That is a virtue. Nay, what he says is, what further duty is for me that I may perform it? Again, this kind of public display of a hyper-spirituality. The Jerusalem Talmud version of this says there are seven types of Pharisee. The Shikmi Pharisee, the Nikfi Pharisee, the Kizai Pharisee, the Pharisee who asks, what is the deduction? The Pharisee who says, when I realize my debt, I will do it. The Pharisee from fear and the Pharisee from love. The Shikmi Pharisee, he carries his commandments on his shoulders. Remember Jesus talks about the scribes that put a burden too heavy upon men's shoulders. Sound familiar? The Nikfi Pharisee, give me credit that I can perform the commandments. The Kizai Pharisee, he commits one transgression and one commandment and balances one against the other. So he sins and then he does a good commandment. A Pharisee who asks, what is the deduction? What do I have that I can deduct for doing a commandment? The Pharisee who says, when I realize my debt, I will do it. I committed that sin and therefore I will do this good deed to counteract it, implying that he had no fault. The Pharisee from fear is like Job and the Pharisee of love is like Abraham. The only one who is dear is the Pharisee of love, like Abraham. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that the Hasidim actually set apart this idea of hyper-exaggerated devotion and drawing attention to oneself, and rather what they talk about is doing your actions in secret. 
your prayer, your giving. Again, that sounds pretty familiar when we're reading Matthew chapter 6 and the words of Jesus. At the same time, Josephus also presents the Pharisees as coming to the aid of the followers of Jesus against the actions of the Sadducean high priest and his cronies, similar to what we find in the book of Acts. Josephus tells the story of the Sadducean high priest who murdered James, the brother of Jesus, and also others of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem. And it is the Pharisees that go to the Roman governor of Syria and get the high priest, the Sadducean high priest, removed because of his unlawful behavior. So now let's turn to the Pharisees in the New Testament, and we're going to start with the Gospels. One thing that happens when we come to reading the Gospels and the Pharisees and, frankly, ancient Judaism, we treat it as a monolithic group, a monolithic idea. The problem is that shows our lack of nuance with the cultural and spiritual reality of the world of ancient Judaism. What we find in reading the Gospels is that Luke in particular is very nuanced when he comes to talking about these different Jewish groups. When he speaks about the Pharisees, he often will say some of the Pharisees representing a difference of opinion among the Pharisee extreme of piety that we find in the sources. So, for example, the episode in Luke chapter 6 of the plucking of the grain on the Sabbath, Luke says some of the Pharisees are criticizing the actions of Jesus' disciples. Once we understand and begin to read ancient Judaism, we realize there's actually a debate between the sages from Galilee and the sages from Judea over an issue very much akin to what we find going on in the Gospels. In other words, Jesus is not outside of these debates that are going on, this living oral law, but he's participant in it. As I mentioned already, the Pharisaic criticism of Jesus in the Gospels, parallels what we find between the Pharisees and the Hasidim. The number one criticism of the Pharisees of Jesus is who he eats with. Yet notice that in Luke's Gospel, if Jesus is not eating with tax collectors, he's eating with Pharisees. You say, well, Mark, but Jesus has the woes against the Pharisees. And yes, I will remind you how Matthew chapter 23 begins. The Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. This was the seat of instruction within the synagogue. Therefore, do everything that they tell you to do. Notice, he endorses their authority and their theology. But he goes on to say, but don't behave the way that they do because they have right teaching, but not right practice. We just saw 
that rabbinic literature, which is descended from the stream of Pharisaic piety, has the very self-same critique about the Pharisees. In other words, Jesus's woes are not an outsider critiquing, but rather an in-house critique. Josephus' testimony of Jesus describes him as a wise man. In Greek, the term is sophos. This is an equivalency to the Hebrew word sage, hacham. In other words, if you were out sitting on one of the fields listening to Jesus of Nazareth teach, and you went around like a cub reporter asking the people sitting there, okay, you have the three main streams of Jewish piety, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, where do you put him? Every one of them would have put him in the stream of Pharisaic piety. Now, that does not mean that I think that Jesus was a card-carrying Pharisee. As I've said, he shares many parallels with the Hasidim, and often the tensions from Jesus and the Pharisees parallel what we see between the Pharisees and the Hasidim. Please also note, in all four Gospels, when it is time to hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea, the Pharisees are never mentioned. The Pharisees are not the enemies of Jesus. In fact, in Luke, they come to warn him that Herod is looking for him. And as we will see that we now turn to Acts, they even are protective of Jesus's movement. The book of Acts mentions the Pharisees four times. Twice, they're members of Jesus's movement. We see this in Acts 15 and Acts 23. In Acts 15, we find those who are members of the party of the Pharisees who are believers. This is a profound statement, and we should ponder it for a while. They are card-carrying Pharisees, and they are believers in Jesus. Their belief in Jesus has not excommunicated them from being Pharisees, yet neither of them being Pharisees has put them out of Jesus' community. In Acts 23, when Paul is standing in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, he makes the statement, I am, present tense, a Pharisee. The other two times that the Pharisees are mentioned in Acts, they are coming to the defense of Jesus's movement. We see this with Paul's teacher, Rabban Gamliel, who comes to the defense of Peter and John. So too, we find the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin, when Paul makes this appeal, I am a Pharisee, they come to his defense. This parallels exactly the depiction that Josephus gives of the Pharisees who come to the aid of Jesus' followers in the wake of the Sadducean high priest and his cronies killing James, the brother of Jesus. When we understand the historical and cultural world of ancient Judaism and begin to open up the New Testament 
we see that in fact it presents a nuanced picture of the Pharisees, particularly Luke Acts. When we read the New Testament's portrayal of the Pharisees within the world of ancient Judaism, this becomes crystal clear. Now, we can continue to persist in remaining ignorant of that nuanced reality, and in so doing, we can continue to foster anti-Jewish tropes within Christian circles, readings, and interpretation, or we can begin to enter the world of ancient Judaism, the world of the New Testament, and therefore understand the words of the New Testament. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Check out our online on-demand courses at Windows into the Bible University, including our digital book club and Bible study. We help you know how to read the Bible, enabling you to learn, to grow, and to master Bible reading and study. By knowing how to study, having on-demand learning experiences, you can reclaim your time and study the right way. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. We'll see you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. Mark. One of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest on-site expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com 
to learn more about biblical expeditions and upcoming trips, and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>